Welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. What is something you see or experience in life in this world that you believe may be broken from what its original state must have been and you crave to see it whole, beautiful, good again? And Chris Cable wrote this, people not understanding that it's up to us as Jesus followers to make earth more like heaven. And I read this and I'm at my computer literally saying, yes, yes, we're getting it. We're getting it. The idea, the idea that we're in a broken world, we all know that, and that the good place where we all want to end up is like on the far side of the universe, like a galaxy far, far, far away is heaven. That's God's place. That's where there's no pain and no hurt. And that we just need God to come take us away. This is the mindset of a lot of Christians in the last two or three hundred years. Just come get us out of this broken world. That is not the story of God in Scripture. That's not his plan for you. And if you're waiting for Jesus to come get you and take you far away to that good place, that's not, that, that's not in the Bible. What is in Scripture is that God has decided to remake this earth, to rebuild what's broken, to reshape out of the ugly and the, the disgusting and the hurt and the trauma, perfect and good and beauty, and his vehicle for starting that movement is the church, imperfect people who fill the church. And so when I read Chris's answer, I was like, uh, oh man, this is so encouraging because I talk to Christians all the time, all the time. I don't necessarily mean here at Dulles. I mean people who contact me from friends around the country or different places. They push back on this idea that God wants to remake this earth. They believe this earth is corrupt. The world is broken. Society, uh, God wants to judge society. And he's going to steal away all the Christians to this faraway place that's perfect. And it's just not the story of the Bible. And so, great job, Chris. Uh, love that you made that comment. All right. Going to do something different today. Brace yourselves, Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take our time today to come down here in the seats and just spend, everybody's got to be patient as I do this one-on-one, -on -one, you personally, one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to offer you an estimate for new gutters on your house. And within 45 minutes to an hour, I think I can hit everybody here in the room. Uh, just be patient. And then later today, because I, I just don't have time to do all of this, I'm going to send a friend that you don't know to your house. They're probably going to ring your doorbell, and they're going to ask for a little bit of your time. Ten, I've said try to keep it to 10 minutes. They're going to offer you an estimate on pesticide for your yard and for around your house. Okay? That's how I've decided to spend our Sunday together, um, our, our, our time interacting together. How does that make you feel? Like, if you don't know me very well and you're like, is he serious? <laughs> is he, he going to come down off the stage and talk to me about pesticides or my new gutters? How, how does it make you feel? It makes you feel the way it makes me feel. When somebody rings our doorbell, how many times has this happened to us? 60 times maybe? 70 times? We turn the corner of our kitchen and we see it. We see the shirt, the, the clipboard, the trainee standing next to the, and how many times have we frozen? And you're whispering, get back, back. And we hide behind our refrigerator. We're like, do they see us? We cringe. We feel irritated. And then when we feel like we're caught, I'm usually, Amy will almost never go to the door. Like, even if she thinks they saw her, she's like, I don't, I don't care. I will, like, ah, I think they saw me. And so I'll go, hello. And then, you know, I need pesticides. Or they've been looking at my gutters. They ask me how old my house is. Twice in the last few months, somebody has said, can I ask you how old your house is? And I'm like, that's such a invasive question from a stranger that I've never met before. It's just awkward, isn't it? 
It feels like a waste of your time. There's some presumption in it. They're presuming to know something I need or they, they think they know something I need or they want me to have this need. And none of us like it. The only person who may like it is somebody who's in crisis. Like literally, just ironically, that week, the windstorm, and there's a piece of gutter hanging off their house, and it's kind of scraping. You might actually be interested in talking to the gutter guy because you're in crisis. For the vast majority of us, it's just, it's like an infringement on our time. You're presuming that we're strangers. Uh, I, 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 this is understood, right? Don't you feel this way? Am I, am I being super negative? Do you like talking to gutter people at, at your door? Okay, I didn't think so. I'm just making sure. <clears throat> this is precisely... This is precisely the approach of Christianity for the last 50 to 75 years when talking about our faith, when thinking about talking to someone at work or in our neighborhood about something that's changed our life, something that's so precious or important to us, our story of Jesus. And when I say our, I'm, I'm generally talking about the larger church. I'm talking about the church in the Western Hemisphere in the last half century or more. This is more the approach of Western Christianity, like gutter salesmen, or trying to convince you you need a pesticide when you're in the middle of a family dinner, or you've got friends over, or something's going on, and, then this, and they're trying to convince you you need something. And you're thinking, I don't even know you. This has become the template for people of faith to talk about what should be the most exciting thing in our lives. And we're talking about this summer, the most exciting idea on earth. That Jesus created a movement that is the most compelling, beautiful, creative force on the planet called the church. And when I say force, I don't, mean, I don't mean forced upon people. I mean force for good and change and beauty and creativity. This is what the church is supposed to be. And it's a movement of imperfect people who gather together in our common union. Our community is someone who's changing us from the inside out and turning the dark and ugly and anxiety and need for control into elevating others and calm in the middle of chaos, in trust about the future. As we shift control, our own control over to God having control of our lives. And this story of ours should be the most amazing story. I believe it. I said this to somebody at lunch this week. I'm convinced that the day is coming. It's, we're either going to choose for this to happen in our lifetime, in our generation, or we're going we're gonna to default again. We'll be another generation that defaults to our kids or our grandkids' generation. The day when the church is who Google is turning to. And the Teslas of the world are going to say, yeah, but we've got to pull in. We've got to pull in the wisdom and creativity of the church because they're just nailing it. This can seem comical to us today because we're like, what? Tesla's going to ask churches how to solve a problem in society? We're so backwards today. Our paradigm is churches are what's made fun of. Christians who have a voice are opinionated. They're hypocritical. They judge. They point fingers at people. And we're pretty OG. We're pretty old school when it comes to doing life. Like, Churches tend to be like a couple generations behind the real problem solvers of the world. And I'm, I, I'm just telling you, I believe that the church that Jesus started, not the church that a lot of us grew up in, you know, the, 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 the keep outsiders on the outside and we've got it figured out. Like that, that's not the church Jesus started. The church Jesus started, the church that looks like him and sounds like him and behaves like him is going to be so compelling for all the right reasons. You know, and today, my paradigm for this is the Googles and Teslas and SpaceXs of the world are going to be leaning into the creativity 
in wisdom, in social approach of churches because of the irresistibility of, of Jesus. And if you're thinking separation of church and state, and this is weird, and how would the, why would Google... Re- it, it is. It's a crazy paradigm. But it's the paradigm of the New Testament. And as the church pushes back on dark and broken and hurting, more and more, just little by little, and the world becomes more... The, the wilderness and the desert is just another spot of green, another, another place of beautiful blue, fresh water in the dry and parched of humanity. Eventually, it results in Jesus saying, okay, this group of people looks like me, they're sounding like me, and now I'm going to come complete the work of remaking planet Earth. It's in the Lord's Prayer. May your will, your heart, your control, may your plan happen on earth as it is in heaven. So, this morning, just in a few minutes here, I wrote here, the the, the most intimidated people I know on earth are people who fill churches. They don't know how to relate their faith, their story, what they're convinced is true about Jesus to outsiders, to people in their street, to people at work. It's either super intimidating or Christians do it with confidence and they sound like freaks. They're just the people that everybody at work wants to avoid. Like, here he comes. Oh, here she comes again. She's got that big Bible. She's... And, and the conversation is just so forced and churchy and super weird. But most, most people who fill churches today are intimidated to talk about what should be the most exciting idea. Our story, what we've we've experienced. And listen to this. In my opinion, the most intimidated people on earth are the people who believe a man came back from the dead. And yet, we don't know how to talk about it. It's super weird. And when we do, it it just comes out just super goofy and cheeseball and like irrelevant So I just want to, for a few minutes today, talk about if if we're actually going to be part of remaking the world. Just, it starts with us, just little by little. Just a little bit of darkness in our street. There's some, there's a divorce that's happened, and man, these people are hurting. I don't care about who's right or wrong. Just, I just, I love these neighbors. I just want to encourage them. That's where it starts. That's what we're talking about. That's what changes the world. In our men's group Monday night, it just clicked with somebody. Somebody said, wait a minute. So if the church actually looks like Jesus, the day will come where no human will, will not have a home. And we all just stopped and looked at each other. The day will come where not a human being on earth will be homeless. If, if one church begins practicing love on our streets and our neighbors, we've got solutions at work that are wise. They're not politically driven. And, and we started dreaming together, as a group, and it was like, it clicked, like, wow, I want to be part of this. And can one church change all that? No, it's got to be, we've got to influence each other. And, it's, and then this church in, in Missouri, and then this church in India, and, and, and then it's 500 churches. And then it's five, and imagine if 5,000 churches around the world were just extending love and beauty, just little by little, this, this person who needs help, this person who's in the hospital. This friend at work who seems to be heavy-hearted or struggling, suddenly the planet is starting to change, and there's more green and beautiful blue water emerging in the desert of humanity. <clears throat> okay, so two real things I'm going to just point out here today to talk through with you when it, when it comes to us being the influence, us and our own imperfections. This doesn't come from our perfection or our egotistical idea that we've got life figured out, it comes from the source that's changing us, which is the way of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus. Churches have taught and modeled something so counter to Jesus for far too long when it comes to engaging society, engaging friends, neighbors, co-workers, influencing this world, pushing back on dark, lonely, hurting places. And so here's the first. 
how, and you know, I, I don't call myself a Christian. I haven't for 20 years. I, I'm, I'm saying Christian or Christianity here because just to kind of generalize. How Christianity should be building relationships. <laughs> how people who follow Jesus should be building relationships in the world. It is remarkable to me how backwards so many followers of Jesus have this. I hear it in conversations, at coffees, friends in California, just wherever. It's just a constant, constant theme. I, got, I had an opportunity to make a point to the North Point Partnership recently, and it kind of resonated, and people sent me notes like, wow. I said that part of the problem and why churches are losing ground more and more in our society is that pastors don't have relationships with people outside the church. This statement, I said it in about four sentences. People wanted to talk to me about it. Pastors all around the... I don't have any friends outside the church. Brad, what, what does that look like for you? What, I'm like, man, wow. This is, we're, we're just, we got such a long way. And I don't have this figured out. I'm just trying my best to, to live out the model of Jesus. And so what does it look like for followers of Jesus to relate to those outside the church? And it's going to sound simple, and yet this is so profound. Your starting place in engaging, I'm I'm calling an outsider, just somebody cynical, somebody outside church or outside the faith expression. Your starting place, our starting place, the way we engage someone or have a conversation with somebody should not be, I need to tell them about my faith. I need to share with them my faith. This is how so many Christians all around the world approach being the influence, being part of the most compelling, exciting phenomenon or force or, or experience on earth, the church. If we are to influence the world, then I need to tell people about my faith. This is so counter and backwards to the way of Jesus. The right way to engage culture, the right way to build friendships, have conversations on your street, at work, is to instead want to get to know the person. I know this sounds simple. Some of you are probably like, when's Brad going to say something that's important or that teaches me something? I'm just telling you, people who fill churches all around the world believe the starting place is I need to figure out how to share my faith I need to tell them Jesus has changed my life and he needs to change your life. And so I got to get there as quickly as I can. That is an agenda. That is engaging someone with an agenda. When Jesus has called us to engage someone with love, they're counter to each other. Agenda is wanting to change a person. Love is wanting to know them. And when you get to know someone, then you get opportunities to express your story. To say, oh, this is what happened in my marriage. When I was dealing with anxiety, this is what it looked like for me. When you you have trust in a friendship because you've genuinely wanted to get to know the person, maybe, maybe conversations of faith or the opportunity never emerges. That's okay. You love them because you love like Jesus loved. Did Jesus have an agenda? Absolutely. Did, did, did Jesus believe, does Jesus believe the world is broken and needs to be made whole? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. It's crystal clear. Do I believe, do I have the agenda that the world is broken and the world needs to experience what makes the world whole? Absolutely, I do. I do have that agenda. But this is the complexity of faith. That does not mean that we, in such a shallow way, such a simple, lazy way, then shift and say, well, then I have an agenda with the people around me to push onto them what I think or what I've experienced or my story. No, the complexity of relationships and love is now my agenda to see the world changed by the love of Jesus is to get to know people genuinely and to care for them and to want to help take care of them, want to help elevate them get to know their story. And if an opportunity emerges where some hurt is shared or questions come up or there's enough trust where you can say, I I, I just don't agree. 
I tried and tried and tried and tried to be in control of my life for so long. And it just didn't, well, what, worked, what worked for you? See, a cynical person isn't going to ask you that if you don't know them that well. But somebody who's, who's built trust with you, you've built trust with them, they're going to say, well, what was it with you, Brad? What, what changed it? Surrender. What? Yeah, actually giving up control. I, I, I absolutely believe, I, I actually believe, I've come to believe that Jesus actually came back from the dead. And it's changed everything. If I walk across the street to a neighbor today that I kind of wave at the trash cans once in a while, and I say, hey, just want to tell you something. I think Jesus came back from the dead. It's just going to be super creepy. Like, that's just weird. They're going to, I'm suddenly the gutter man, you know? Like, it, but when there's trust, because you've actually cared about the person, whether they ever agree with you or not, you care about them, out of that context comes the opportunity to maybe tell your story someday or to maybe push back a little bit. Like, I, I'm your friend. We've played cards together every Friday night for years or we, we, we've golfed together or we've set, we have Willard's Barbecue for so long. Or I need to just tell you, I, I, you know I love you. I just don't think that's respecting your wife, man. See, that person's going to listen to you. They might push back and you might argue a little bit, but, but your buddies, there's trust. And God's spirit will often speak through that where they go home and they know Brad's right. Oh, I hate it that he's right, but he's right. I'm not, I'm not respecting my wife. And then they circle back and go, can we talk more about this? See, that's, that happens when you have cared about a person without an agenda. This person, I may never get to tell them my story or share my faith with them. doesn't matter. I love them because Jesus Loved me, period. He met me where I was. He didn't make me clean up and have to come to church for a couple months before he really shows me he loves me. He just meets me where I am in life, and he loves me, and he tells me I'm his child. However lost or upside down or however arrogant or in control I think I have, I, I am, he loves me. And when that seeps down into you enough and long enough, you, you start to just love So I'm going to say this one more time because I think it's worth repeating. Agenda is intending to change a person, convince a person. Love wants to know the person. And often the way, and this is just, this is, again, it sounds so simple you might miss it. When we engage in relationships, when you meet a neighbor, when there's the person at work that you kind of chit-chat with, Building the relationship, your, your agenda, should, your, your plan, your strategy should not be, I got to figure out how to tell them my story. Your, your, agenda, your, your strategy should be ask questions. This is part of why the church in America is so arrogant today. We're so politically centric. People look at churches and they think politics. Because we speak our opinions. Not we, not a lot of you, thank goodness. I mean, we, we really do. We work hard at this. We talking about Christianity and Western Christianity over the last 50 or 75 years. We lead with opinions rather than genuine, sincere curiosity of the person. When you're curious, when you care about a person enough that you're curious, you ask a lot of questions. Where are you from? Do you know the question, where are you from? leads to such genuine friendships. When you go to work or you walk across the street, like, how can I, how can I get this person to church? You've lost them already. That's, that's, it's, it's selfish. It's lazy. It's intellectually and socially lazy to approach a person wanting to convince them or tell them. It's, it's spiritually narcissistic. The humility of Jesus approaches people with a whole lot of questions. Well, what's your story? Well, what do you believe about this? All right, that's the first point. I don't know how profound that was or not. It's become pretty profound to me. You approach people not with the intent, I've got to figure out how to share my faith. You approach pe people who follow Jesus, approach people wanting to get to know the person. Do you realize that Jesus, we, we, we see Jesus convincing a lot of people. I mean, it was thousands, you know, and 
Jesus' third year, and he's getting close to the cross. I mean, thousands of people race from one town to another. He, it, it's like these big mic drop moments in Galilee and Judea and Palestine. It, it, it's the, the buzz. Talk about Elvis. The new Elvis movie's coming out. Uh, can't wait to see it. The Tom Hanks movie. The film festival was approached about this. I think we're going to have a DC pre-screening here next week, maybe. We're still waiting for Warner Brothers to give us the... Anyway, I've distracted myself. That Jesus was the Elvis of his world. He, so many people, thousands upon thousands, can't wait to hear him speak again the next day, racing around Galilee, the southern end of the the Sea of Galilee, to get to the next town, to, to, to hear him and speak with him. And we think it's just Jesus is telling people what to do. You, you, you need life. You need eternal life. Jesus got to know their needs in every single case. The woman in adultery, he doesn't walk up to her and say, how dare you? You're living in sin. He, he understood. It was brought to his attention, her need, her brokenness. He asked so many questions. People would ask him a question. He'd say, well, I'll answer your question. Let me start with a question. I'll ask you a question. Go back to the first pages of creation. When Adam and Eve are in this perfect, perfect place of beauty, heaven on earth, heaven and earth, man's space and God's space together, and then we broke it by wanting to take control, what's the first thing that happens? Human beings are hiding from God. And how does God approach them? How dare you? Where are you? I know you're hiding. That's not what got four questions. The very first words from God in approaching Adam and Eve and approaching humans about what's happened. Something catastrophic has happened. He led with questions. Four questions. Where are you? Why did you do this? Even, even that approach in approaching our, our need for control and our selfishness and breaking the world. God's approach was inquisitive rather than judging. And it's just consistently through the life of Jesus. All right, we've got time for the second. Here's the second solution. And I'm sure there are more, and I haven't mastered this by any means. That's not, that's not how I approach this, certainly. I'm learning just along with everybody else. But this is some of what I've learned from the story of Jesus. And from just seeing how ridiculously arrogant Christian, the world of Christianity has been for, for a century or more. Which, which is nothing like Jesus, of course. That's why I say it. Jesus gave up his life to elevate others. There's not an arrogant moment in the story of Jesus. Okay, here's the second solution. is speaking the language of culture. Christians don't know how to do this. It's super weird. I, 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 some of the most awkward conversations I have are with Christians. They say words that nobody else understands. You have to be inside a church building to understand what that means. Uh, and we, we do this, and maybe you, the longer you've been in church, the more you struggle with this. The newer you are to faith in church, the less likely that you do these things. Okay, and I was born in church. I was in church like in week two of my life, and I grew up in church. So I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. I'm just saying that the longer you've been in church, the more of a struggle this is going to be. You use language. You probably use language that you don't realize. Outsiders have no clue what you're talking about. We do it in our songs. Amy's so good. The word hallelujah was in one of our songs today. You're so good about explaining that typically. I don't know if you did today. We have songs. Christian songwriters are so lazy they put the word hallelujah in as a filler when they don't know how to finish. And, and nobody in the outside world knows what that word means. And yet we're like, hallelujah, hallelujah. It sounds so churchy. It sounds so worshipful. I don't know how to end this line about God, so I'm going to say hallelujah. And nobody in the outside world knows what that word means. Why do we use it so much? We use language, Christianity uses language, that sounds biblical because we think Jesus used biblical-sounding language. We say things like living water. Jesus said living water. I'm quoting him. Of course it's okay, right? How can that not be good? Jesus himself said it. 
We, it's a metaphor. Jesus was using a metaphor with a woman at a water well in the middle of the noonday sun, in the heat of the day, and he takes her immediate need and he makes a metaphor to describe what he can do deep in her soul for the rest of her life. I have living water. And she's like, you have living water? Well, then I'll put this bucket down. Where's the water? And he's like, it's me. He's contextualized the need that this woman, he's using a metaphor in her language, in her context. And then we take that and put it as the name of our church, Living Water Church. Oh, you sound like you've spent time with God. There's living water flowing out of you. That is, that's weird language. Are you going to go to work and tell somebody you just have living water flowing out of you? That's weird. It's creepy. And only Christians talk this way. Jesus did not talk that way. And you say, what? but he said it. He, he said it in a context that made sense. If you say to somebody at work, yeah, I've become a fisher of men. That's weird. Don't ever say that at work. <laughs> Jesus said it to fishermen in a boat. He's telling them, I'm taking a concept you understand, and I'm going to shift your focus to people. You are going to chase people with love. You're going to care about True friendships, you're going to meet people where they're struggling and hurting. And they understood because they're fishermen. And he says, yeah, you're going to fish for people now. Why in the world? I went to a, I grew up as a kid going to a Christian music festival called Fishnet. So stupid. It's so stupid. You know what you do when you name your Christian festival Fishnet? You're telling outsiders, we don't want you here. We're going to speak language and say words here that only Christians understand. Okay, while I'm offending people, let me just add a few more examples here. In our midst, in our midst is a phrase that only Christians use. Not mist, like misty, midst. We, Christians pray this a lot. God, we, we, we feel you in our midst today. Or I, we're inviting God to come be in our midst. I grew up in a church. I actually said this and prayed it a lot. Because I grew up hearing it. God, would you come be in our midst this evening? God, fill our worship. And if, if you have not heard that, thank God. It means you're new to church. <laughs> it means you didn't, you didn't grow up in church like I did. And then Steve Bell and Sean Updike and my high school baseball team asked me if they could come to church with me. And everything changed. I watched every word on the lyric of our screen at church. Like, good Lord, he doesn't know what that, he doesn't know what that word means. He doesn't, uh, we just said hallelujah, 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 three. And now we're saying hallelujah. What in the world? In our midst, Sean doesn't know what in our midst means. He thinks we're saying the word, he thinks we're mispronouncing the word mist. And, People who say these things tend to not care or think about our language. It's what we say. This is, what we just, this is how we talk because we're Christians and we, we talk this way in churches. And all the while, more and more people are leaving churches or giving up on church because it doesn't relate. We have kids in America who grow up in church, go to college, and they never return. The percentage has never been higher. In large part because the church doesn't speak a language that's relevant to society or culture. Hallelujah. I, I made fun of the word hallelujah a while ago. It's a precious word. It's important. David, King David used this word. It's a Hebrew word that in the English Bible, it's one of the rare words that isn't transliterated. We actually translate into English the Hebrew word hallelujah. And so we say, well, it's important. Let's put it in our songs and let's say it. Uh, <clears throat> we often, I grew up in a church where a song would end and the people in the crowd, you know, would say amen. That's another thing. I'm, I'm distracting myself with multiple. But often at the end of a song, you'd hear people around the room saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. And it's like, does that mean the song was really important to me? Does that mean I'm having this spiritual moment with God? Nobody really knows what it means, but it's an important spiritual word. And you know what I found is most Christians who say the word hallelujah at the end of songs, they don't even know what it means. 
Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It's a compound word where hallelujah was the Hebrew for I have so much excitement about a person, I want to elevate them. I want to tell their story. I want to talk about them. I want to make them bigger. Hallelujah means that. I want to, it's so exciting, this person's story or what they've done. I want, to, I want to elevate or tell their story. And Yah, hallelujah, Yah in Hebrew is the short, the short version of Yahweh, the Hebrew word for creator God. Hallelujah means God's story is so amazing. I want to tell it and make it bigger. And yet we have Christians all over the world that say hallelujah at the end of the and they have no clue what it means. They don't want to know what it means. It's just important. It's part of the tradition to just say hallelujah. All right, let me move on. A couple more examples. Share the gospel. I don't know if I have time to explain this, but we have the gospels, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Mark, Luke, and John. So important. This is such an important word to me, and yet I don't use it in outside language because outsiders don't know what it means. Is it important? Yes, it's important. Would Jesus use it today? No. You know what Jesus would say? I've got extraordinary news for you. He wouldn't say, I want to share the gospel with you, or, oh, oh, you're a person of the gospel, or let's go. He wouldn't use that word because we don't, culture doesn't know that word. He would say, gospel is the Greek word for really great news. So why don't we say, you know what, our friendship, we've had coffee for so many months. Is it okay with you if I just share a little more with just, just the exciting story that I've learned? That's what gospel means. Why say gospel when they're like, what? You're using church language again, Brad. Why not just say what you mean? Another example. Amen. If your friends and neighbors are compelled to come to church and consider your faith, why would you speak out loud amen to something you like the pastor saying rather than just say, ooh, I like that? <laughs> If you like it, just say, ooh, I like that. Why say this creepy church word, amen? And the person next to you, your neighbor who's finally come to church with you, they're like, is he praying right now? And while the pastor's talking, what's happening? Okay, um, some things that Jesus has said. Why on earth would we ever use words that culture or people at work or your neighbors won't understand? Where did Christians learn this? Not from Jesus, If insiders are all that matter to a church, to a church person, a person of faith, then language to outsiders just doesn't matter and never will. The words that Jesus used, here, here's a, a, just a handful. I've got a couple minutes here. I can give some examples. Some words that Jesus used that he would, he would not want you to use today. And if that confuses you, it comes down to context. Jesus used words in his land, in his generation, to the people, the audience around him that he would not want you to use today because people around you wouldn't understand them. Example, sow seed in good soil producing a crop 100-fold. You know who he was talking to? He was talking to farmers. Jesus was describing the power of his words to farmers. And so he talks about a mustard seed. He talks about sowing seed in good soil. If you try to talk to somebody new at work about <clears throat> how God has sown seed into your soil and you're producing a hundredfold crop, you've lost them. Jesus is living water. I already used that example. Kingdom of God. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. Is it important? Absolutely. Should we reference it and read it from Scripture? Sure, but we should give context to it. He's talking in a, in a, to a people who come from a kingdom, the king, king David, the kingdom of Israel. And they're waiting for the kingdom to be reestablished again and push back against the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire, who is very oppressive. And so Jesus presents the realm of God as a kingdom because most of the people of the world will understand what a kingdom is. It doesn't mean that we have to, you, you can describe this, that the, the the place where God dwells, the heart of God, the control of God. These are all things that describe the kingdom of God. Evangelical, oh my gosh, that word. 
It's used so opposite. It's, it's used exactly opposite of what it meant. Evangelical today refers to a group of Christians who are opinionated and they're very loud about their faith and they tend to be critical of those who don't agree. That's, that's, a, that's my definition of what evangelical Christian means. It's someone who wants to share their faith very boldly and often in a condescending way. It comes from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion meant to share really great news with somebody who needs good news. And today it's become associated with a political party, a political platform. Uh, If we take the time to contextualize the word evangelical to where people understand, oh, that's what it means. Well, then let's have that. Let's spend the time talking about otherwise. Why use it to tell your friends, oh, I'm very, very political, I'm very opinionated, and I look down on how you think? That's what they're going to think if you say the word evangelical and the word Christian. I I haven't called myself a Christian in 20-plus years because I I say apprentice of Jesus, follower of Jesus, one that follows the way of Jesus, because Christian today in our society means very critical person, very one-sided doesn't care a lot about intellectualism or education. Uh, And there's a lot of hypocrisy in Christianity. So I tell my friends, are you religious? Actually, I don't consider myself religious. I, I, I follow Jesus. That defines in society today. They may not agree. They may not be interested. But they understand it's not political language. Oh, he reads the story of Jesus. He follows the model of Jesus. Okay. If I say Christian, they immediately think they know how I vote, what I think of other people, what I think of gay people, what I think of... That's the assumption because that's the paradigm. That's what Christianity has come to mean in society. Will that change someday? Maybe. If it changes someday and people understand Christian to mean pursuer of the way of Jesus, well, then let's use the word Christian again when that happens. Um, I can't read the clock. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with a story. I'm, I'm going to... I've got time here to... This is from Tony Campolo. I read this story probably 34, 35, 36 years ago in a book that he wrote. He was a pastor, and he told a story about going to Hawaii to speak, and this is his story. And I'm just going to read it. Take me a few minutes here. Um... And by the way, uh, note this. If you want to see something fascinating where Jesus tells the Pharisees, the arrogant religious leaders, prostitutes will be in God's kingdom for eternity before you guys will. Jesus says that in Matthew 21, 31 through 32. You can read it later. He tells the arrogant religious leaders, I just want you guys to know, prostitutes are going to live with God in eternity before you guys ever will. <laughs> this is one of the many things I love about Jesus. It's very provocative. It got him crucified. It got him crucified. And they thought they'd won. Obviously, that just played into the whole story of Jesus actually conquering death. All right, so with that in mind, I, uh, listen to the story. If you live on the East Coast and travel to Hawaii, you know that there's a time difference that makes 3 o'clock in the morning feel like 9 a.m., With that in mind, you will understand that whenever I go out to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready to go while almost everybody else is still asleep, but I find that I want breakfast when almost everything on the island is still closed, which is why I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools of the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I told him a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on the spoon, Smudged apron, then grabbed a donut on the shelf behind him. I'm a, I'm a realist. I know that in the back of the room of that restaurant, 
Donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around, but when everything is out in front where I can see it, I really would have appreciated it if he had used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a, it was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, the woman said next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. And this is how people who follow the way of Jesus listen and look for opportunities and think about others. And, you know, in, in this context this morning, I'm going to say the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit actually speaks and prompts us. And that's what's happening here. I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called to the guy behind the counter and asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he said. The one next to me, does she come in here every night? Yep, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. What do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her? Right here, tomorrow night. A smile crossed his face, and he answered with, a me with measured delight. That's, a, that's great. That's a great idea. I like it. Calling out to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants to go in with him, wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out in the back room, bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of these people who's really nice and kind, and nobody ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even have a birthday cake. No way, said Harry, the guy behind the counter. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner, packed, uh, picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store, had made the sign of the pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because at 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> at 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes uh, and her friend. I had everybody ready. I was the MC of the whole affair, he said. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted. So stunned, so shaken, her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her as if she was led to one of the stools along the counter. We all sang happy birthday to her. I didn't read that correctly, but you understand. As we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then with the birthday cake, all the candles lit on it, carried out, was carried out. She lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow. She was crying so much, Harry had to blow out the candles. Agnes looks down at the cake. I'm going to paraphrase here for time. Uh, she looks down at the cake, and they're asking her to cut it. Go ahead and cut your birthday cake. And she, in her tears, asks, can we not cut the cake? Can we just look at it for a little bit? And then she ends up asking, can you guys all stay here for 10 minutes? I've never had a birthday cake. I want to take the birthday cake home and show my mom. And she takes it 10 minutes away down the street uh, to her mom's. And, and I'm, I'm skipping about four or five paragraphs here. He didn't know what to do in the silence of the diners. <laughs> this pastor who writes the story says, 
Hey, everybody, what do you say we pray? <laughs> uh, looking, at it, <clears throat> looking back on it now, it seems more strange for a socialist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her to know God and experience the love of Jesus. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would, become, would be good to her. When I finished praying, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? This is the end. In one of those moments, when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties <laughs> for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Okay, so we're way on, long on time here. Um, I'm just, I'm going to let that story be our closing prayer. It's, it's time for people who follow Jesus and believe he came back from the dead to engage the world around us the way he did. Not with an agenda to change people, but with the heart to get to know them. And then when we get to know them and tough stuff comes up, or you, you have the trust to be able to say, hey, you seem heavy-hearted today. What's going on? What's up? And they answer, you know, what's going on at home or this fear or whatever's going on. You have the courage then to follow God's prompting to tell your story. This is how the world is going to change. This is how broken planet Earth that we all agree is broken in Washington, D.C. is never going to solve it. When are we going to wake up and see that? Imperfect people who fill church, churches, it may seem ridiculous to you that churches are going to solve the Earth's problem. They are. Jesus tells us that's going to be the, the solution. Him, his power, his love, working in imperfect people like us, something extraordinary happens, transcendent, will happen when we do this together with neighbors across the street and people at work. And suddenly we are in a generation, hopefully before any of us die, where we see it's happening. It's happening. And the New Testament tells us at some point in that momentum, Jesus will come back and finish the renewal of all things. I just want to be a part of it. Why would I concede this to a future generation? I'm not going to. I don't have all the answers. We're going to fumble and stumble, and I might misspeak or talk too much to somebody and drive them a little crazy. Those things will happen. But I'm telling you, I believe wisdom is going to come out of the church someday where Washington, D.C. is calling churches. Like, man, you guys, for 10 years, you... It's, it's just as common sense. It's uniting. Left and right come together when you guys talk. I'm dreaming of that, and I want to live it out to the best I can, and I want you to be a part of it. And if you're listening from home or from your car or in the podcast right now, just join us. Don't let anything get in your way. Invest as we dive more into this this summer. Okay, the story was the closing prayer. Love you guys. Happy Sunday. Have a great week.